Going from New Jersey State Trooper to undercover agent infiltrating the East Coast Mafia to refereeing basketball in the NBA to traveling the world helping others with post-traumatic stress is a unique journey the legendary Bob Delaney shares with nobody else. And you'll hear how he's taking what he's learned through his incredible experiences to initiate higher levels of support for military, law enforcement, first responders, healthcare workers, and more on this episode of Making Our World Better. Welcome to the Making Our World Better podcast, where you will find motivation and encouragement through lively conversations with inspirational people who every day are making our world a better place. Now, here's your host, Jay Clark. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jay Clark, and what a thrill it is to host a conversation with the legendary Bob Delaney, a highly decorated New Jersey State Trooper and longtime distinguished NBA referee. Bob's life story is one the best Hollywood screenwriter could not make up. Early in his career as a New Jersey state trooper, Bob went undercover for three years, infiltrating the mafia across Philadelphia, New Jersey, and New York, and his work ultimately led to the conviction of numerous mobsters. This work also led Bob to refereeing basketball, and his acumen led to a quick rise to the highest level of the sport. Bob's time undercover is documented in his great book, Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob, and his time undercover also led to his firsthand experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. After his successful NBA career, which Bob will explain was also somewhat of a byproduct of his PTSD, Bob has devoted his life to helping others cope with trauma and its insidious effects. He's traveled the world working with military, law enforcement, and first responders helping countless people deal with the damage from invisible wounds that are as real as any physical wounds. He has authored Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress in 2001, 2011, I'm sorry, also has a new book coming out called Heroes Are Human that delves into his work with first responders dealing with the traumas of the COVID pandemic. Can't wait to unpack all of this. Welcome, Bob, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Jay. So I know I know you've told this story a million times, but a million plus one, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about the journey from New Jersey State Trooper to the mob, to the NBA, to what you're doing now. Yeah, thank you. I um, grew up in a house that my father was a state trooper, right? So I followed in my father's footsteps and joined the New Jersey State Police. However, as a kid, I was not like enamored and thought that I would want to become a, a state trooper that started like in uh, probably in my sophomore to junior year of college that I started giving it thought. And I looked at it more of service to the state of New Jersey versus a law enforcement position. And, um, you know, I, I grew up um, in, in a community that uh, I was truly raised by, by a village and my grandparents, aunts and uncles were um, an influence in my life. Right. So, you know, I followed in my father's footsteps, joined the New Jersey State Police, and that organization is steeped in deep military tradition. It was founded right. H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the famed General H. Norman, Norman. the uh, uh, Gulf Wars. I um, went through that training. It's a 23-week resident training down in Seagirt, New Jersey. And um, I graduate, and it was a heck of a gig back then, Jay. Um, you yeah. know, we were like a firehouse. Right. The state police station for two days. You went home for two days. We were the local cops for about for towns that didn't have their own police departments in the state of New Jersey, as well as doing the miles and smiles on the highway right. and, 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 and Italy and accidents. I went to Newton State, uh, excuse me, Flemington Station. Six months, you were transferred about a year onto the job. I was in Somerville Station. And if you walked into a state police station back in those days, every state police station was the same. It was a Police station is winter, but the second and third floor where troopers live, two troopers to every one. Like a firehouse. Like a firehouse, exactly. And then downstairs was our kitchen, ping pong uh, table, a pool right. table, maybe uh, a TV. It was our it was our house. As yeah. You, like a firehouse. And they try to make you feel good about yourself. You know, you get <laughs> a, a little cubby hole in the squad room with your name on it, like that's your office. Yeah. And, reports in there and you have notes and I walked in after two days off and there was a note to call Lieutenant Jack Liddy division headquarters criminal investigation section organizers this guy had more titles next to his name than I ever saw <laughs> wasn't common for a general road duty trooper to get a call from division headquarters yeah 
Yeah, I grew up Irish Catholic. That means <laughs> I got guilty in the morning. Yeah, I thought I yeah. did something wrong. I thought I had a problem on my hands. And the other trooper said, relax, give, give the guy a call. You probably gave a ticket to a mob guy who wants to talk to you. <laughs> I called the lieutenant. He said to me, you're going to be in for a while. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'll meet you in the kitchen about an hour and a half. Hour and a half later, this intimidating figure is standing there. He stood about six foot four. Oh, geez. Hung on his lapels when he spoke to you. <laughs> the kind of guy that the button on the shirt has never met the hole on the shirt. You know, mm. could be a 22. Yeah. Um, after a period of conversation, Lieutenant Liddy said to me, are you interested in doing undercover work? And I said, yes, sir. And he turned and walked away. So, Lieutenant, what is it, drugs, narcotics? Back then, what we were doing is buy a bus on the street. Right. He said, if you keep asking questions, you're going to be out and running. And over the next three weeks, I learned that the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, New Jersey State Police, were coming together. And we we're going to start our own trucking company on the waterfront in New Jersey. I became one of those undercover guys, myself, another state trooper, three FBI agents. And we started a small trucking company called Mid-Atlantic Air Sea Transportation. And the grant was written for six months, Jake. Yeah. A grant. Like, we were going to end organized crime in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> right. On to the next thing. Yeah. And we learned very quickly that's not going to happen. Right. So um, we got lucky in the investigation. We were floundering over those first few months. And we thought we had a big operation. We had a 16-foot truck. We had a van and a station. Yeah. We're thinking, why aren't the unions knocking our doors down? Well, it was a big operation for cops. It wasn't a big operation. For right. <laughs> and um guy named Pat Kelly was a concierge for the Genorgio crew, Bruno crime family. It was jammed up. State police had cases on him. The FBI had cases on him. And uh, he had a choice. He can go to jail or work for us. He came to work for us. And he scolded us in a way to wise. He sat us down one day and he said, I don't know what you're doing with five co-owners. We were being politically correct. We're all five co-owners. That right. was more than anybody else. He said, but I never saw a bus going down the street, five bus drivers. <laughs> got to be in charge. And so I became the president of a new trucking company called Alamo Transportation uh, in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty and Liberty State Park. Pat Kelly became the vice president. The other trooper became my driver bodyguard. The FBI agents took on roles your truck operations. And we had a viable trucking company that had two new partners, the Genovese and, and, and Bruno crime families. And we're wow. picking 25%, 12 yep. and a half to each. Fascinating. So walk us walk through us. when you, when you finish this up, you know, what, what is it like to suddenly going from, you know, playing a role, which I think is one of the best stories ever. Your name was actually Bobby covert. Um, but how do you go from, from being Bobby Covert to going back to being Bob Delaney? Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, and Bobby Covert was my undercover name. Robert Allen Covert was born in November 1949. I was born in November 1951. If you go to the death records and birth records are not cross-indexed in our country. So if you go to the death record side, find someone with the same first name, ethnic-sounding last name, right. same grouping. And what was important um, from our view, was that the first names be the same. So Lieutenant, right. he did a great deal of research. And when you get that birth certificate, go from the death record side, this is a child that died at birth, mm -hmm. rec birth record side, you get the birth certificate, and then you start developing. And of course, with the FBI, the state police contacts, driver's license, social security cards, every identifier that needed to be put together. It, wasn't looked upon to be a cute or funny kind of uh, thing that we did with the name Bobby. Right. It just happened. And then years later, the word covert, you know, post-water were common. But back in those days, you know, it was referred to, you were undercover. It was just an undercover agent or a narc or or something along that term. So, uh, but it does become... And I, you know, kind of a funny kind of name for an undercover guy. It's hysterical. Again, you can't make it up, right? No, no. <laughs> it, it, and so um, this went on for close to three years of my life. Right. And every six months, the grant was upped. And I was becoming more and more involved, infiltrating the mob and becoming closer and closer. And so for something that I was enthusiastic about doing, like any other project in right. life, we're all enthusiastic right. about it. As a, You're and young I, and bulletproof and be over six months. Now, all of a sudden, it's it's consuming my life. Right. And I have my life as Bob Delaney 
I only see myself as Bob Cover. Right. And um, it, it just took a, an emotional toll. Yet I was not honest with my feelings because I was afraid that if I said anything to my bosses or to the other troopers or FBI agents, I would look at, be looked upon as weak. Right. Um, it's a huge problem with all this. So when I tell the story, I mean, I can go on for hours with Soprano. Right. Um, and, and, and as you said, the, they're all documented in the book over my years of trading the mob. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to go to the last day, which was the day of the raid. And in that day, um, for anyone that's ever been involved in something like this, you muster up around three in the morning. Uh, uniformed troopers, state police detectives, FBI. It was at the West Orange Armory, West Orange, New Jersey. And um, they start sending two troopers, one FBI agent, state police detective out in teams and start picking up 30 of the mobsters that wow. first arrest. There were over 100 arrested in this investigation. And um, they start bringing them in. I was at the command post. Yeah. You thing on you that says you are who you are. And I was made to look as though I was thrown out in the state police. So um, when troopers saw me again, after three years, right. this long-haired, 25-pound uh, heavier guy, and they're looking at me with John Desai because there were a lot of rumors that went around why I left. And um, there was even a personnel order that came out and said that I resigned from the state police. And then another one was put into the colonel and FBI safes saying that this is part of the ruse for my wow. operation, if God forbid anything ever happened. Right. But, um, I was assigned to be with Sergeant Barry Lardier, and Sergeant Lardier was in plain clothes, but he had that state police uh, identification out, hanging right. out, out jacket pocket. And at one point, as the defendants were being brought in, he said to me, you want to go downstairs and see what's going on? And downstairs, meaning from where we were in the command post, was where they were being brought right. in, photographed, shoot them off into the room, see who's going to be the next informant. And um, I said yes when I really meant no, because mm. now they know who I am. And I put myself at grade rest. I went back to that military training that I learned at the State Police Academy. And um, as I got downstairs, I'm standing next to Sergeant here. I got my hands behind my back, shoulders up, eyes up. And Ronnie Sardella was being fingerprinted, a guy that, for lack of a better term, was a friend, was a friend, uh, stole tractor trailers with him, did, right. nothing, did dope deals with him, knew his wife, knew his kids. He was being fingerprinted. As the trooper was putting the cuffs back on him, he looked over at me and said, Bobby, what they pinch you for? Before I could answer, Sergeant Lardier said, he's not pinching, he's with us. He's yeah. a trooper. And the look that went between us was not one of anger. It was one of hurt and disappointment. He looked at me and said, Bobby, how can you do that to us? How can you do it to me and my friend? Freeze frame, go back to St. Mary's Grammar School, Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah. I was taught by the Good Sisters of St. Dominic. And I got caught in fifth grade doing something wrong. And Sister Joseph Rosier told me I was going to be punished. And before she told me what the punishment was, I said, Sister Jimmy Delella's doing it. <laughs> best friend in a heartbreak. <laughs> and you know the ring that says the good sisters are married? Yeah. That's also there to put welts in Whack. the head. <laughs> Bang, she gave me a shot in the head. And she said, Delaney, you don't tell on your friends. It's an unwritten rule on the schoolyard. You don't tell on your friends. Yet we ask them to cover people to become friends with people. Right. And I refer to it as what was taking place inside of me after I surfaced, there was an emotional violence, emotional roller coaster um, feeling inside of me because I felt hypocritical. Yeah. And I felt like um, it, it compounded because a week to 10 days later, Jay, I was called back to division headquarters to meet with Major Bill Baum, who was in charge of all investigations for the state of New Jersey. And when I walked into his office, he played of a wiretap um, that was at a social club in Hoboken, New Jersey, a Genovese hangout. Yeah. Innuendo conversation about whacking me. And there was also intelligence information that he was getting from the FBI and state police of uh, retribution. Right. Um, I tried to act cool and say it doesn't make for a bad, it doesn't make for oh. a good difference. And he said, um, we're going to get this where we want it. And I want you to think about who we're dealing with. They're not going to sit around saying uh, that Bob Delaney was a funny guy, huh? Uh, he hung out with us for three years. We're all going away for eight to 20. <laughs> Let's uh, have him over for dinner one night. Yeah, that's not happening. Very aggressive, uh, violent terms. He yeah. said, but we're sure it is 
where we want it to be. And until then, you're going to have a security team. And so I had troopers living in my home, troopers outside the house. I had to go out and testify uh, in grand juries. I had to go out and continue investigations on a surface level to identify people. And so this security team that was around me, a detective by the name of John Schroth, that was um, part of it. And John had a background in psychology from Rutgers University. And he was one of the first that identified something going on for something I wanted to get away from so bad. Yeah. Within three weeks, I had the leather jacket back on, I had the rings on, uh, I had the chains around my neck. I was going back to being Bobby Pover. That was your normal, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I, that was my comfort zone. Right. Yeah. Well, um, he, um, the surveillance team at times, you know, we got closer. And then at some points when we'd be out late on the surveillance, we stop off for a drink after work kind of thing, middle of the night. And if I got back in that environment, I started buying everybody drinks because mm. that's what Bobby Colvin. Right. And Tro said to me, what are you doing, pal? It's not Fed money anymore. Yeah. It's your mortgage money. You're right. And I did the moonwalk. I got away from that. He doesn't know what I'm going through. I don't want to hear what he has to say. And I got lucky again. I was I was being paraded around. I testified before the United States Senate, gave a briefing to Congress, spoke about this job. Everybody wanted to hear about it. Not what I speak about today, but the actual nuts and bolts. Right. Unique setting of a law enforcement viable trucking company. Yeah. And um, I was speaking at the Jersey City Police Academy, and Dr. Henry Campbell was in the audience. He was doing work for them. And Hank was my college psychology professor at New Jersey City University. We reunited and started doing some informal therapy. Yeah. And he was the first one who said to me, Bobby, what you're going through is post-traumatic stress. I said, Hank, get out. I'm, right. I'm a trooper. It's, it's military. I, I'm reading about it from being, this is Jay back in the late 70s. And right. Years. So this is this is yeah. brand new. Yeah. And post-traumatic stress did not become disorder did not become a diagnosis in 1980. But this has been around forever. After the Civil War, we called it Soldier's Heart. After World War I, we called it um, Shell Shock. After World War II, we called it Battle Fatigue. After Korean uh, and Vietnam, we refer to it as flashbacks. And then we refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder. And from my view, we have over-medicalized this conversation ever since. And please don't interpret that. I mean, we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. Right. We have resources. It's building the bridge that get those who need the resources to those that are helpful. But I think we've also gotten to the point that we have created an image that people think they should have some ill effects from going through difficult times. And I think we have to honor and um, embrace the resiliency, the wisdom, and the courage that comes yeah. through tough times as well. Right. So I got lucky for the third team. A guy by the name of Louis Free was a street agent, FBI agent. He became the 15th director of the FBI. Yeah. Ah, heard of him. Yeah, uh, Louis, great guy. And um, he knew that I was going through tough times. And um, he introduced me to a, another undercover agent by the name of Joe Stone. You may know him as Donnie Brasco. Brasco. And the first time I spoke to Joe, and I read his body language and I looked in his eyes and I heard his words. I knew he got what I was going through. And that was my first introduction to peer-to-peer conversation. I used to refer to it as peer-to-peer therapy. Right. But to take away every medical sounding term. I don't even. Less intimidating, right? Yeah. Or stigmatized or whatever. Stigmatized. Exactly. um, I use the term uh, operational stress when I speak about post-traumatic stress with law enforcement, military, firefighters, first responders, now healthcare workers, as you you explained. But, um, I also use the word mind health versus mental right. health. I think mental health creates an image right. of mental And we have physical health. We have uh, emotional health. Yep. And we should find health. And so the words matter in this conversation, from my view. And um, for the last 40 years, parallel to my NBA career and all that I've been doing, I've been doing this work in the area of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's um, the peer to peer thing. I'd love to talk a little bit about because you know I've been had a great conversation with uh, a family that lost one of their teens to suicide, and she said, you know, there's a lot of great therapists out there, but until you talk to somebody who struggled with the same type of thing that you do, you you feel like you're on an island. I mean, is that something that you've discovered as well through this? Yeah, I agree, um, and and that's where. Um, at times, you know, the, the traditional ways of therapy um, need to be broadened, in my view. Agreed. Peer-to-peer um, -peer is extremely important. And peer-to-peer -peer means people who have gone through a similar experience, not the same, and that word is, is chosen very carefully, right. similar, so, right. same, but similar. And there's an identification that take, takes place. What I ask people to do is not be judgmental about pushing right. stress. And what I mean by that is not judgmental of me to you or you to me, judgmental within ourselves. Yeah. Minimize what we experience. Right. Think we're the only one that has gone through something and then we're afraid to have the conversation. Right. I term, term what is personal is if you're feeling it, someone else has as well. And when you are willing, you and I, sit and talk about a similar experience right you tell your story you give me permission to tell my story and then we validate our feelings right and that gives us a sense of we're not alone we're not on an island and that there is hope and that word hope is important because what yeah. comes to so many of us is shame shame right. is a powerful emotion i had shame thinking I wasn't strong enough to do the undercover job. I had shame thinking I felt guilty locking up these bad, some bad people. Right. Some of them I had no remorse about, <laughs> right. but I knew their families. And, right. and I became judgmental within my own morality. Right. The whole compass got skewed. Yeah. People living on the street, the street changes you, you don't change the street. Right. And um, I refer to working undercover as like living in a toilet. If you <laughs> toilet long enough, you're going to start to stink. And um, it changes. I was looking at people that were doing steel, steel and tractor loads as not bad guys. All they were put bread on the table. Yeah, right. To me, the bad guys were putting bullets in people's heads and, 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 and giving people beatings. Right. But the reality is, if you would have asked me about arresting somebody for a stolen load of TVs, as a uniform trooper, that would have been like, All right, of course, criminal investigation. Yeah, my values changed. All right, skewed, and and I went into a different way, and um, and so I was going on the, all these emotional kind of trips that I didn't know how to navigate, and then right. a lot of folks helped me through all of these situations. Yeah, well, and then talk about a little too is isn't part of it. You know, if you've been traumatized by whatever, talk about where it's this thing where somebody's got it worse. So I'm not going to talk about it because somebody's got it worse than me. You know, I experienced that on the pile of 9-11. I would hear from the cops, take care of the firefighters. We They got hit worse than us. So it's almost a minimization. Right. For experience. Uh, if you remember when the Fort Hood shootings took yep. place, uh, General Cohn, Bob Cohn was the commander at the time. He brought me in for weeks to spend sharing time with folks there. And I went back to him and I said, General, we've got to become even more specific. People across the post were saying to me, I was okay because I wasn't in the building when the shooting took place. <coughs> Excuse me. And I said, we have to bring the people together that were in the building. Yeah. The people that were within a close proximity and then people across the post because if you folks in the same room, the folks that are across the post be afraid to speak about right. feelings. Right. Peer-to-peer -peer is actually bringing folks together that have gone through a similar experience and having a, an awareness um, to the proximity to the event. And so I use an example of an earthquake. Earthquake has an epicenter. Yep. And yet there are tremors that go out for hours, weeks, days, months later. 
having an awareness of a traumatic event and how that impacts the great analogy within that area we have to have sensitivity to and give them the opportunity to voice because their stuff is their stuff yeah um I would ask your audience to imagine that I'm holding a gl- half a glass of water and I would ask them, how much does it weigh? And, and people will answer four or six ounces. Right. And I said, yeah, it's easy to carry. It doesn't. But how about I stand here for a month holding it out and you all come back 30 days later. I'm going to be a pain in the neck to be around. Right. So it's light. It's going to pull on my shoulder. It's going to be frustrating. It's not until I learn how to ask someone to help me carry it. Or put it down and understand how to walk away from it at times. Right. Will I interact with it better? That's us with trauma. Yeah. That's post-traumatic stress. Well, I would hope that the people listening to this would would realize that just think back to when you met Joe Stone. If not for him, there's probably nobody that that you could relate to, and you probably would have never this probably never would arise to the surface. And then when you hold that stuff in, the effects are are awful. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to use substance another. abuse, homelessness, all this stuff. Yes, trauma is usually at the root of all of it, and then it can lead to mental illness. Right, lead to mental illness and suicide. Right. Suicide. So my belief is that um, you mentioned surviving the shadows. The yep. book that I wrote um, great book. Surviving the shadows: a journey of hope into post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. I fought with the. Uh, publisher to not have disorder next to the work because my belief is that in order to keep post-traumatic stress at post-traumatic stress that doesn't allow it to become to the disorder level right um if we can do things to put up roadblocks that's what my hope is yeah here's another analogy i'm going to ask your audience to imagine i've got the biggest balloon they've ever seen that i'm holding on to and it's full of air how do we get the air out of that balloon? i could take a pin and pop it but we don't have a balloon anymore. Right. I can let it go and it flies all over the room. It goes out the door. We don't know what happened to the balloon. But if we're patient and willing to listen to sounds, we do not want to hear. Sounds that may even hurt our ears. It makes, yeah. makes that screeching noise. Eventually, we get all the air out of the balloon and we have a full balloon we can use again one day. That's us with traumatic events. We need to talk about it. We need to get the air out of our balloons. But more often than not, what do we do? We push it down. One on top of another. Right. We make believe we can handle it. It doesn't bother us. Yeah. I'm not asking. I tell people I've written three books, articles. I speak all over the world. Not all my stuff's on the street yet either. I'm not saying get right. rid of all of your stuff. There's right. some things that always, maybe only a few people know in the world that for all of us, but allowing parts of it out. Because if you take that analogy to its fruition, eventually that balloon's going to burst. Right. And we want to do everything we can to like minimize and, and alleviate right. and some of it to come out. And I know peer-to-peer works. Yeah. I've, I've watched it in action over the last 40 years of my life. It works. Yeah. And I mean, can you share any any other great stories that you have of, of peer-to-peer really working? Yeah. Um, so um, um Tim Karcher is a colonel in the United States Army, and uh, I did work with him down at BAMC at the Brooks Medical School, uh, Brooks Medical uh, Facility in San Antonio at a post-traumatic stress program. And he said to me, you know what post-traumatic stress is like? It's like dieting. Some of us need to lose 5 to 10 pounds, some 10 to 20, and some of us are more obese with trauma. And I said, Tim, what a great story is this? Tiddy's in Iraq leading his troops. He gets hit with an RPG. They have to fight their way back on the ground because they couldn't get him in the air. And his team does that. They get him back. He gets to the field hospital. Then he's brought down to, to, to Baghdad, to, to the main hospital, then over to Long School, Germany. And that's when I then went from BAMC and he shares this story with me and, and this analogy. And I said, Tim, what a great way to help people understand post-traumatic stress. It's not a quantifiable. You can't quantify right. it. Right. You can't measure it. Right. Yet his analogy helps us understand that. I said to him, I'm going to use this in my presentation. Yeah. I've been five to 10 pounds overweight since I came out of the womb. <laughs> and I've been 10 to 20 and I've been obese. But that didn't mean I stopped living. What it right. meant, 
and simply bought bigger pants. Right. So I had to figure out ways how to lose a little bit at a time. So it's not about eliminating post-traumatic stress. It's learning how to interact with it and and try to minimize its impact. Right. And if we can do that, we can put roadblocks up. Right. Allowing post-traumatic stress, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, leading to mental illness, leading to Right. And the, um, the, uh, in your question, you asked about uh, a, a, another example. Um, you know, um, I've had conversations with military soldiers, cops, firefighters all over the world and um, been to Iraq and Afghanistan on numerous occasions, have heard their stories. But in conversations, while my boots were not their boots, I went where their boots were. Right. Uh, rapport. And I would hear from them, sir, I hate garbage day in my town because garbage along the sides of the street is where IDs could be hidden, in my view. Sir, I'm late for work all the time because I can't go over a bridge in in the USA without checking for an ID. Oh, man. Sir, I wanted to bond with my kids, so I went for a walk. And my kid kicked the can, and I went ballistic, and I felt so bad afterwards because my son is looking at me like who's this but where i came from if you kick something you're not coming home sir i was i was tasked with taking care of the prisoners and talking to my family like the prisoners um these aren't stories i made stories and, and conversations that i had with those who served right and sharing with them and and Sharing with them what I experienced, um, I was a wall puncher. Uh, I was a frustrated child <laughs> that didn't know how to react to all that I was. I didn't want right. to. I was angry. Right. I didn't understand post traumatic stress. I didn't understand that there was a hyper vigilance that comes with. I didn't understand all of these physical things that take place with it. We always think emotional psychology is a physiology. Mm-hmm. And so when I shared my story. And told them it was this understanding of okay, you get it. <laughs> yes. And that is peer-to-peer. And that helps us both then be able to figure out ways to calm our bodies down. Right. How we can go about trying to figure out ways to 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 interact with it. Because that default is always your your new normal right if you know your default is in stress you're going to go back to being bobby covert or you're going to go back to being that guy that's got to look for the ids so it's it's you know again effectively finding that transition and and i want to ask about the the new book because i i you know the effects of the pandemic i think we're going to be studying for generations but one of the fascinating parts i i want to ask you about is when you say heroes are human it's been my experience. Nobody likes being called a hero. I mean, I'm sure you've been called a hero more times than you could count. And you're probably uncomfortable with that because most guys, I know a, a guy that paratrooped into to France on June 5th, the night before D-Day. He said, I'm not a hero. Decorations all over his jacket. I'm not a hero. So so talk to me a little bit about that in this work that you've been doing with first responders. because You know, they're the heroes and everything else, but they don't like that label, do they? That's that's a, uh, I mean, you're right on. Um, I I lived a life where people tell me I'm a tough guy or I did heroic work or give you the title hero. And it never feels comfortable because there's such a high level of paranoia that comes with uh, post-traumatic stress that they didn't see me walking around my house at two o'clock in the morning with my gun out, pushing shower curtains. Oh, geez. Right. I'm going to get me. And, um, Having done this work for so many years, I would drive by hospitals and see signs saying, heroes work here. Right. To your point, I'm saying they don't feel like heroes, man. Right. That is a comment or a a slogan that was like a bumper sticker of we support our troops. Right. I would always ask people with bumper stickers like that. I said, that's great. How are you doing that? Right. Just putting a bumper sticker up and putting a sign doesn't. Right. And then it drove me to say, these folks are not feeling like heroes with the amount of death that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Feeling heroic. So I wanted to understand and 
I drew the parallels between the work that I've been doing with those who serve in law enforcement, firefighters, uh, our military, and our nurses, doctors, healthcare workers, first responders throughout the COVID pandemic have been at war with an invisible enemy. Right. Who, those who were at war, uh, whether it be battles on the streets of the United States or battles in uh, foreign soil, uh, that was going on. And, and I would have conversations and I would go to COVID wards and don the PPE to right. they were going through. And it was amazing stories that were told to me. And I, I refer to it as heroes are human because hero be, heroes are human beings. Right. We like to, meaning all those right. involved, like to create a heroic figure off to the side. Mm-hmm. I mean, my family, growing up Irish Catholic, there was a, a crucifix and then a picture of Jesus, and then a picture of John Kennedy, because uh, that was that heroic mindset that are going to take care of us. And while we all have our religious beliefs, I believe that resiliency has to it. Resiliency comes in three segments from my view. A confrontation to the reality. We have to confront what's taking place, but I use the word carefrontation. I like that. Confront kind of comes... Confrontation kind of conjures up this negativity. Right. Or to as carefrontation. This is taking place because we care. Right. Then there is that search for meaning. And that's the spirituality in our own religious beliefs. Right. Now, the third part is FIA, F-I-A, flexible, innovative, and adaptive. I believe we all do that in operations. Yeah. No matter right. what your profession. So if we take that over to the resiliency side and say, this is about taking care of us. And understanding that self-care is not selfish. Self-care is about taking care of you to be the best right. you can be. Right. To make this world the best world it can be. Those are the kinds of things that, that need to take place. Um, I'm a Jersey guy, so I take exits every once in a yeah. while. I'm exit on you. I went down another path, but um, I hope that I answered uh, some of the things about heroes are human. You know, we as a society were asked to sit in our driveways six feet apart and have a happy hour. Right. You were sacrificing. Right. Men and women who serve on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. I'll just give you one story. Uh, I interviewed a nurse and she told me that she knew she was having tough times. She was an ICU nurse. And she said she just wanted to chill out. She went with her husband for a, a day on the lake just to hang out. And she said at the end of the day, they had such a great day. They got, came in and, and she went to the front of the boat to tie it off. And as she got to the front of the boat, she cried uncontrollably. And her husband had to console her and tie the boat off. And what had happened, Chip? On, on the dock was a small boat that had a tarp over it that was the same color of the body bag yeah. she had big patients into. And it triggered her to remember every one of the names and saw every one of the faces. And that was the emotional outburst. Right. This is similar stories to what I just shared about our military experience. Right. This is ongoing. We're starting to see. I wrote an article in 2020 in the Tampa Bay Times predicting a wave of post-traumatic stress within the healthcare community. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, it's coming true. We're seeing an uptick in post-traumatic stress, burnout, suicide um, is taking place. I say the same thing I say about our military. We owe them. Um, we have a great financial debt in our society, and we all hear about it on a daily basis, but we've got a debt to those who serve us. No question. That thing. So one of the things we're doing that's pretty unique with the Heroes Are Human book is that I'm going to hospitals and locations, and the community are sponsoring the book. Oh, nice. Gifted. We're not asking them, we're gifting them to the hospital your workers in saying that we honor you, we thank you, and we support And the book has um, a lot of conversation about peer-to-peer, and yeah. that helps in, in dealing with these kinds right. of things. Well, and that, that's got to be almost an impediment, too, because if I think you're a hero, you're going to say, well, I'm a hero. I got to tamp this down. I can't bring it out. But if I come to you and go, I've been through the same thing or something similar, 
I get right where you're at. I've, I've been dealing with the same kind of struggling with the same kind of things. That's got to make a ginormous difference. Yeah, Jay. And also, events shine lights on subject. Right. This COVID is shining the light on a subject matter that needs to be discussed for years. But right. Healthcare people have been under. I, I say that uniforms, you know, whether it's the uniform I used to wear as a state trooper, the uniform that military wear, and I'll say it's the same thing as lab coats and scrubs for the healthcare workers. When you put that uniform on, you think you can leap tall buildings in a single right. day. Right. Of course. You are invincible. Right. Oh, you cannot show emotion when you're doing your job. You have to be able to understand that when that uniform comes off, there's a human being inside that uniform yep. to be tended to. So our healthcare workers have been at war with an invisible enemy. They have been holding hands of patients, something that they normally don't do. Right. Because family members would you normally be there. But they're setting up Zoom calls for people to say their final goodbyes. Yeah, geez. They've also never had to be afraid of bringing home cancer, bringing home broken legs, bringing them home. Right. Now this is a fear that they're going to infect their own families. Right. These are stressors that are on these folks. Remarkable stressors. Acknowledge that and understand it and, and give them the opportunity to process it. Because if we start losing folks, just think of this. Right. It's not good for any of us. Enough good for any of us. Absolutely. So I I have to ask, one of the things I loved about the uh, the book cover was how one of the things that got you back to your old normal was officiating basketball. So tell me kind of how that took on a life of its own and how how that helped you in the process. Yeah. um, So... I was a pretty good athlete as a young kid. And uh, so I'm 10, 11 years old. And now I'm going to try out for the CYO basketball team, St. Mary's. I played on the Little League team. It was pretty successful. And so I just think you just come, you know, you go from one sport to the another. I cut in seventh grade. <laughs> I got cut. My parents get me a basketball, put up a hoop, I practice, practice, practice. I make it in eighth grade, go on to high school become All-State, play in college at New Jersey City University. Basketball um, gave me an inner peace. Being between those lines was important. The only thing that made sense to me when I surfaced from doing the undercover work, I was being drawn back and I couldn't play anymore. So I started to officiate fifth and sixth grade games after the period of time when the state police felt it was comfortable for me to go back. Uh. And I stayed in the state police for 10 years after that. It didn't just come and so I was refereeing high school basketball, trying to get into the college, couldn't get in. And I would referee during the summer pro leagues in City College, New York, up in the Rucker, up in um, um, uh, the Jersey Shore Pro League. And, and, and I can't imagine the level of talent had to be. Yeah, the talent was crazy because like Rory Sparrow's play, right. Right. Uh, Roy Hinson, it's all NBA. Right. right. And, and then you got the street guys. Right. But he knows their real name. They call helicopter because he <laughs> around red. Everybody had a different name. I right. mean, the level was off the charts. And Daryl Garrison happened to be at a Jersey Shore Summer Pro League game, and he asked me if I was interested in refereeing the NBA. Put me into the Continental Basketball Association. And what I tell you, folks, find your inner peace. Um, for me, it was basketball. Basketball gave me my life back. It was, it was, and has always been. As a kid, it's a game you can play by yourself. Yep. I don't need anybody else. I can go out and practice. Right. I can play two-on-two two or three-on-three and then play in a more formal structure. Find what gives you your inner peace. And basketball did that for me. And one thing, as a result of post-traumatic stress, it opened the door to get back to a game that I loved as a kid and opened the door to get to the NBA. Then I spent 25 years refereeing the National Basketball Association, came off the floor and became the vice president of referee operation, director of officials. And uh, when I left there, Greg Sankey called me from the SEC and uh, created a position. I'm now the special advisor for officiating development performance for the Southeastern awesome. sports. I do more in the area of basketball because of my background. But basketball is that, in sports is the anchor for me. I 
Jay, my, my grandson is playing football now at Brady Christian School down in Florida. I went down to the game. I flew down Friday night to go to the game. They lost. And I, I spoke with them afterwards, and they said, you know, great thing about sports is that it it, it helps you to become humble in winning, vicious yep. in losing, and helps you to understand how to turn disappointment into motivation. And while I said those words to him, it was a reminder to me that all those things is what I got from sports, from the game of basketball, and how it helped me through difficult times of my life. Well, you've obviously learned to deal with your your post-traumatic stress pretty well from your undercover days, because if you could manage dealing with some of those kooks in the NBA, <laughs> in the NBA crowds without that completely giving you a whole nother case of post-traumatic stress, then, then you definitely can handle it. But I, I'll, I'll, I'll switch gears here a little bit because I don't I want to respect your time. And um, last few questions are, you know, one I love to ask is what's something you'll read, listen to or watch today? Well, I, I, I'm a lifelong learner. You know, I, I'm very honest in, pre- in presentations. I went to college for one reason, to play basketball. Sure. Uh, my thirst for knowledge didn't come until later in life. So um, I, I left in my senior year to become a state trooper because the state police had not given a test for quite a while. And I was afraid if I didn't take that window. Miss it. Right. I, I, and so and I knew that the NBA was not going to be calling me if I stayed in basketball. Let me become more realistic as you get older. And um, it, and I left in my senior year and it took me because of the undercover job. It took me a long time. So I'm the class of 85 when I should really be the class of 73. And um, then like just became immersed in wanting to understand about post-traumatic stress and became a student. And, and then I got my master's in leadership from St. Mary's College of California and uh, 2019, I went to Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program. Dr. Wow. Malik has become a mentor, and he's the director, and he has a great line. He says that trauma is inescapable in life. It and is. True statement, very simple statement, but a true right. statement. Help people understand that we're all. So trauma awareness is important. We've done it with HIV AIDS. We've done it with alcohol, drugs, tobacco. We should be aware of what trauma and how it can impact us, mm-hmm. not to have conversations and so i present for uh his program now uh i'm constantly uh, right uh, uh, i'm reading giannis um uh, right now by Marion fodder uh about the story of the greek freak yeah. uh, but also i have um another book that um is called um get it on kenny thomas who was on the ground during the battle at uh, Black Hawk Down. Oh, wow. Perspective and what he's gone on to do in life. He's a country singer oh, and wow. does very well. So learning other people's stories, I, I think storytelling is important. We learn through emotion. No doubt. And, and, and hearing stories of other folks uh, helps because when I tell my story, I have people that tell me, I feel like you're speaking directly to me. I said, because it's not my story. It's our story. It's yeah, a story. It's a story of emotion. That's awesome. So tell me about some of the organizations out there doing work in this area that you, you really admire what they're doing. Well, TAPS, I'm on the board of TAPS, which is Tragedy Assistance Program Survivors. Bonnie Carroll started this 20 year, 20 plus years ago, and it cares for the family of the families of the fallen. And it could be a fallen from the battlefield, fallen from suicide, fallen from uh, an accident, fallen from uh, natural deaths. Um, she, her husband Tom, was killed. In, he was a general, and um, in the military, and he was killed in a plane crash. And she came to realize that her support system was not even a place she could go anymore because she mm. needed credentials to be able to get on the post. Oh, geez. This uh, and and it thousands upon thousands upon thousands of families. She is an amazing woman that has done amazing work. We now have TAPS uh, UK. We now have TAPS uh, Iraq. Awesome. um, There's going to be a honoring in November of a memorial in Kurdistan where Iraqi troops, moms who passed, 
will meet with American troop moms at this oh, wow. Bring Americans and Iraqis who lost their lives and understanding the ripple effects it has to families. She's doing it in, in Ukraine right now because oh, those wow. families. Yeah. So helping those that have gone through losses, um, it, I think is important. TAPS is an amazing program. I'm very involved with the Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program and um, so many good folks there that are doing work in sex trafficking, the trauma that comes as a result, refugees, uh, all kinds of, um, anywhere trauma can show up, uh, I'm meeting with folks and, and having conversations. That's awesome. Really making this. So I highly recommend Covert. I hope that gets made into a movie someday. Uh, yeah, no, it's conversations around, around it. Yeah. I'm sure. Uh, but I hope that happens because, it, like I say, it's you, you couldn't make it up. It's a fascinating read. I hope people read that. If anybody wants to pick up uh, Heroes Are Human or any of your other books, what should they do? Where can they find it? Yeah, them? Amazon, uh, any of them. You can go to my website, DelaneyConsultants.com. Um, if you, you want them signed, just send me a note. We'll, we'll ship it out. Uh, but the books are available. Um, at, at Amazon, Simon & Schuster, Books of Million, all anywhere, I guess the terminology is anywhere books are sold. They're they're fascinating. Like I say, Covert is a fantastic read. Surviving the Shadows is awesome. Can't wait to get my hands on the last one. Bob, I'm so grateful for the time. Keep up the great work. You're a man of the world, making a huge difference, and we're grateful for you. Jay, my hope for you and, and your audience, that you stay healthy, stay safe, take care of one another, and take care of you, too. Self-care does not mean selfish. I love that. We're gonna I'm gonna write that down on a bumper sticker. Bob, cheers. Honor. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening. I could have kept Bob going for hours and hours, and we didn't even start down the road of old NBA stories. This podcast has been brought to you by JC Charity and Event Services. If you're interested in how I might be able to bolster your efforts and help your team achieve its goals, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can find me at makingourworldbetter.com. To learn more about the work Bob is doing, order his books, or hire him as your next keynote speaker, visit delaneyconsultants.com. Check the show notes for links, and if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd share it with a friend. Until next time, I hope you're inspired to find a way to make our world better.